Welcome to The Gaslighting Effect. I'm Angela, writer, teacher, cult survivor. After decades of being silenced, I'm finally finding my voice. Today I'm talking about moving past the mobbing. Research has been done on the effects of mobbing. Those who have undergone workplace bullying to the extreme that groups of people have basically driven them out of the workforce or they've been forced to resign or quit. Many, unfortunately, also take their own lives. I've seen the results of mobbing compared to burns and divided into three categories. First degree mobbing, like a first degree burn. Second degree mobbing, like a second degree burn. And third degree mobbing, like a third degree burn. So first degree mobbing is basically when you're able to get out without it hurting your career. Yes, it still is going to affect you emotionally. Yes, it's still going to cause trauma and upheaval in your life. And you're still going to have to heal from it. But at least you were able to do it in a way where it didn't adversely affect your career long term and where you didn't have to take a long extended break to recover. This is really where my mobbing experience falls. I'm very fortunate. I'm very lucky because there are people who have it a whole lot worse. Second degree mobbing is where it goes on for such a long time and a person's reputation is so damaged and they are psychologically so hurt, they actually need to take off an extended amount of time from work in order to go back to work and be stable and in order to find work without their name being completely torn to shreds and smeared. There's a woman I work with now at my school. Excellent worker, really great teacher, loves the kids, does wonderful work, is always prepared, shows up cheerful, shows up smiling, really a fantastic teacher. She was mobbed at one point in the school and she had to take a whole year off in order to recover and to get back into teaching. And I would say that in her case, when it's that severe, where you have to take time off, that's second degree mobbing. Third degree is when it goes on for such a long time, your career and your mental health never do recover. And I will put people who actually take their own lives into this category, as well as those who become just unemployable or have to go on disability or develop such severe CPTSD that they can never work again. This would be third degree mobbing. And in reading about mobbing, what I find interesting is that the kind of mobbing that you ultimately undergo or or the severity of the mobbing really has little to do with whether the people treat you worse and more to do with how quickly you get out the faster you get out 
the less likely that experience is going to scar you for life. It's like being chased by wolves. If you can get away from the wolves faster, you're less likely to sustain injuries and you're less likely to die. It's not that the wolves are any nicer in any of the scenarios, but the longer you endure it, the harder the recovery is. So at looking at my own experience, I'm really incredibly super fortunate and super lucky because I was able to get out. I was able to change jobs and communities and counties someplace where my reputation wasn't completely destroyed. And I was able to go into a career field that I wanted to go into that I was excited about. And I didn't have to stop working for an extended period of time in order to do it. I don't want to give you guys the impression that because I was incredibly fortunate and lucky that this wasn't an ordeal or that this wasn't hard, especially for my children. Keep in mind that my kids at this point had been through a divorce. They had moved to a tiny cockroach-infested apartment on the wrong side of the tracks for 18 months during the separation. And then we had moved again to the townhouse where we lived at the time that the mobbing occurred, and we had lived there for three years. So these kids had not only gone through a divorce and the whole custody arrangement and the trauma of having their family change, but they had changed schools three times over the course of about four years, and they had changed homes just as many times with me, along with moving homes twice with their dad. So for me to come home and tell them that I had found this job, and now, but it was an hour away, over an hour away, huge commute in a different community, and now at some point we were going to have to move again. This was not good news for my kids. They were not happy. And what you have to understand is these wonderful children of mine, all four of them have IEPs. All four of them are special needs. Three of them are on the autism spectrum. So change is super hard already. And they're finally feeling like they're in a community and in a school where they're comfortable and that they have friends. When I told them that we were going to have to move again. We had been in that house, that townhome for three years. And they really didn't think they were going to have to uproot again. And they were very unhappy. My oldest son had just gotten into a program uh, to learn how to repair cars, like auto body cars as a junior in high school at this special school that the county brand new had just opened and he was really excited to start this new program. It was a year long. 
And my oldest daughter, Rena, was finally making friends and was really feeling like we were stable and settled. So when I told Rena, she immediately started crying. She was very upset. And she had been through so much. I didn't know what to do except to apologize repeatedly. And I remember walking with her past our townhouse, through the townhouse neighborhood, on the sidewalk past the school where I worked at the time, under a tunnel, into the woods, and then just sitting on a bench and listening to her ask me, Mom, when will it ever be over? When will we ever be settled? When will we ever be safe? And how do I know that we won't move to this new place and then something else bad will happen and we'll have to move again? How can I trust that that won't happen? So I promised my children, Rena and Wallace and Alias and her little brother, that we would stay in that house another year before we moved and that I would just commute. I would just bite the bullet and I would just drive for a year. And that way my oldest son could attend his auto program for that year. And my oldest daughter could continue to feel comfortable and stable with her friends for another year. But in agreeing to stay another school year and to drive over an hour each way, I knew it wasn't sustainable. And... So I made an agreement with them that it would only be a year. And then we would move. So lucky as I was, and I was lucky, this decision to take a job over an hour away in a completely different county was not without consequences and it was not without pain. And I couldn't help but think of Lee and how she had been so concerned about the family moving and how hard that would be on my children. But then how her and Megan have been the whole cause of why we were in this situation in the first place. Lee, who made almost twice as much as I did, who had a husband who also made money and who was no longer raising children, who had the funds to buy their own vacation home, who didn't have to put kids through school anymore, and who'd been working at that particular school for over 20 years. Megan, who only had one child. Sweet, sweet girl, Rena's age. But who also had a husband who made a lot of money, enough that they had enough disposable income that they could go on vacation to London for his 50th birthday. Shannon, who also made over twice what I did who was stable in her job, none of these women who had ganged up on me and had put me in this unstable situation, none of them had to deal with the same amount of uh, financial strain and stress that I did. None of them had to deal with 
and maybe deal is the wrong word, none of them had to worry about raising kids that were special needs. None of them had to worry about how on one income, a school teacher's income, they were going to put these kids through college. None of them had to deal with their meltdowns on, on a regular basis the way I did. Or take them to the doctor. Or had any idea what it was like to stand in my shoes. None of them had ever been a single mother. Been in an abusive marriage. Or had to leave that marriage by hiding a phone inside the hollow of a Bible. None of them. They had no idea. And here they were throwing stones. Telling me how I was hurting them. When I wouldn't be in that unstable position to begin with. If they hadn't been so vindictive and petty and terrible. On the very last day. When Megan and the other assistant were no longer there. And it was only Shannon and Lee. Those two women had gone out of their way to make me promise to stay in touch with them. I was sitting at my desk and Lee came over. And I'm just going to remind you listeners that I was in the state of mind where I was a doormat and I was doing everything they wanted me to do because I was just afraid they were going to hurt me more. And I knew if I spoke my mind, it would be perceived as me attacking. So... I was in that mindset of do what your enemies want while you're in an argument with them, while you're in the way with them so that they don't hurt you worse. You know, turn the other cheek. That was really the mindset I was in. So the very last day of school, after the kids are gone and the assistants aren't there, Lee comes up to me and she explains to me, again, like she's the authority figure and I am supposed to listen to her that her and Megan and Shannon they have a connection to my children they love my children and I need to promise to keep them in my life so that they can continue to receive updates on my children and to connect with them that it's the right thing to do And I need you to promise that you will stay connected with me, Lee says. She didn't apologize. She didn't acknowledge that they'd driven me out of the workforce. They didn't, she didn't acknowledge that they put me in a situation that was untenable, where I had to uproot my already traumatized kids and traumatize them again. She took no responsibility whatsoever, but... She insisted that I make a promise to her that she would stay in my life so she could stay in my kid's life because she loved them so much. Listeners, I'm sorry, but if you love my children, don't put me in a financially untenable position and a position where my mental health isn't even sustainable while holding on to to a job. That's not what you do when you love a person's children you don't put their whole security at risk that's bullshit okay it's bullshit and if i sound angry it's because i am 
Because if Lee wanted to actually have a relationship with me beyond this job, she should have acted like an actual friend. And I'm a forgiving enough person that had she owned up to her part, I probably would have continued to associate with her. But she didn't. She just acted like she was entitled to know what my children were doing and she was entitled to be in their lives and mine because she loved them. Her definition of love is so messed up. So messed up. And she effectively made me promise that I would continue to stay in contact with her. But at that point, I didn't feel I could argue. So of course I promised her. I didn't mean it. I didn't mean it because had I contradicted or said truthfully that I wanted nothing to do with her, she would have argued with me. And it would have turned into a big brouhaha, which was the very last thing I wanted. So I agreed with her so that she would leave me alone, listeners. And then I proceeded to block her on Facebook and block her phone number. Because no, I don't need that in my life. Same day, Lee leaves. I go down to help a friend who was fired that year because she was targeted by Jay. Pack up her whole room and load it into her truck. And I'm talking with her and I'm taking my time. I'm in the hallway. And just as I'm about to go back to my room, Shannon comes. Shannon, who really hasn't been much better, who is absolutely a part of the mobbing and who has absolutely played an instrumental part in putting me in this situation where I have to uproot my kids and start over again. She gives me this big hug out of nowhere. I just want you to know that I really love your children and not just me, but Lee and Megan, they really have a connection with your children. They really love them so much and you need to promise that you will stay in contact with us so that we can continue to watch them grow because we love them so much. So again, I agreed, but not because I actually was going to stay in contact with them because I didn't want to argue because I was still in the position where I was subordinate to them, where they had been acting as my second and third and fourth bosses for most of the year. And I really couldn't contradict them without, without it turning nasty or without them saying something behind my back that was mean. So yes, I did promise, but then again, Shannon, blocked on Facebook, blocked on my phone. It took me many months to block May on Facebook and block May on my phone, but I did block her as well. I blocked Megan. Good riddance. Seriously, you, you can't talk about how much you love my children after completely stabilizing my career and putting them at financial risk. Kids need, like, food to survive and clothes and a place to live and a roof over their head. 
And if you're going to threaten the employment of their mother, how are they going to get those things? So the nerve of talking about how much you love them. The nerve. Really? So yes, it was first degree mobbing, but it was by no means easy. I drove a year to my new job over an hour each way. And the first month that hour commute was spent ruminating because I hadn't had an outlet to process all of the shit these women had put me through. But now that I was driving, I would find myself on the road in the quiet of the car, hitting my fist on the steering wheel and cussing because I was remembering all the stuff they did. I was remembering it all and processing it and how messed up it was and how wrong. I would never treat a person like that. Then I would get to work and I would be scared because I didn't really know the people there. I didn't know if they were gonna do the same kind of thing that my last workmates had done. My last workmates who claimed to love my children and then had gone and ruined my job and my life. How did I know that these people that I was working with were gonna be any different? I didn't. So I smiled and I tried to get along as much as I could but in the back of my mind was always this mantra, don't hurt me, don't hurt me, don't hurt me. Maybe if I smile enough, maybe if I'm happy enough, maybe if I come into this job and I'm ultra friendly, nobody will hurt me. And I swear, if I had had a marker, if there were such a thing as a person being branded on their forehead, <laughs> I would have written on my forehead right now, don't hurt me. Because even at this point, over a year out, I have friends at this new job. I like my principal. I love the kids. I'm good at it. And I'm much safer here. Like, I feel like it's a much healthier place to work than the other job was. And like, I have more resources and I'm less likely to be mobbed. And even with all that, sometimes I still walk into work. My very first thought that comes into my mind repeatedly is, don't hurt me, don't hurt me, don't hurt me. And listeners, that is not a way to go through life. Rena fell in love the year while I was commuting. She found someone in her school that really understood her, that she walked home with every day. That was her reason for going to school. She fell in love. And then she was forced to move away from the person she loved. So even with the happy ending, we're still grieving. I love our new house. We did over the summer get the house ready to sell and we were able to sell it and the whole family moved. We uprooted and we moved 70 miles 
and we're living in a single family house now instead of a townhouse. We have a yard in the woods with beautiful trees and windows in the house and a beautiful view and privacy. It's a gated community. It's a lovely house and my children really like it and I really like it. We've got a screened in deck with a hammock and a fireplace and a big beautiful kitchen and a garage. We have a garage. And yet even with all that, I I still walk around thinking, don't hurt me, don't hurt me. The neighborhood I live in is super conservative. And I am not conservative. I am as Democrat as they come at this point. I can't abide religion because of my upbringing as a very strict, in a very strict Mormon home. I, I can't abide religion. I can't tolerate it. Um, I probably feel different if I grew up Lutheran or something Methodist or something like that. But because I grew up in a cult, I really can't deal with religion and all my neighbors are super religious they go to church every week and they like to talk about god and religion and there are american flags hung up all over the neighborhood and i'm kind of feeling conflicted about being an american right now i mean i love my country and i'm definitely a part of it but I'm not super happy about who our president is. And I'm not super happy about the militarism. And yet, I ordered an American flag. And I hung it up big, big and prominent on our front porch. Why? Because I don't want to stand out. I don't want to give anybody a reason to think I'm different. I don't want to give anyone a reason to notice that... I'm a single mom with four kids that I I don't want anyone to scapegoat me or to target me or to hurt me. So again, it goes back to this mentality of please, I'm like you. Put your weapons down. Please just don't hurt me. And I hope that someday I can get to a point where I can teach students and work and raise my family and feel really truly secure and not have that mantra in my head. But it's been two years and it's still there. I still, everywhere I go, feel like kind of a chameleon, like I have to blend in and be like everyone else because if I don't blend in, maybe someone will hurt me because they'll target me, they'll see I'm different. And this is where I talk about why you will not find my face anywhere regarding this podcast. You will not find my face on Spotlight and Spiritual Abuse. You will never find me on YouTube in a capacity where you can see my face or Patreon in a way you can see my face. I don't use my real last name. Uh, my book, which is out, that you can find the link to on Amazon, sorry, so sorry, uh, The Complete Collection and Memoir in Verse, that's under a fake name, Angie Outis, not my real name. Yes, my first name is Angela, 
And yes, Angie is short for Angela. But Outis means nobody. And the reason I chose Outis for my last name is because when I left my marriage, I felt like a nobody. And now that I'm out on my own and relatively safe with a stable work environment and a stable home and the kids are finally really adjusting and hopefully we'll be able to stay here and I love my job, even with all that working out, I still feel like I am safer if I am hidden. Because I don't trust people anymore. Because even though that level of mobbing was only level one, and I got out, and I got out and was able to get a job I love, and we're still financially solvent and everything is fine, I don't think I'll ever be the same. I don't know that I will ever feel safe again. If you enjoyed this episode, consider joining me on the Facebook page called Spotlight on Spiritual Abuse. You can message me there or post. And remember to always trust your instincts. Don't let others tell you how to think.